Hill Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Will you pray with me? Lamb of God, you have established your eternal kingdom, not by way of violence, but through sacrificial love offered for all humanity. Reform our hearts and open our eyes to see and participate in your kingdom of divine love today. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Mindy Durius, and I'm one of the pastors here at Pearl. Thank you for being here this morning. We're at the tail end of the season of Easter, and this Sunday, as we've said, we're celebrating Ascension Sunday that marks the end of the 40 days post-resurrection where Jesus showed himself to the disciples before ascending to the right hand of the Father. Next week, we celebrate Pentecost Sunday, and lastly, we observe Trinity Sunday. These three special feasts conclude the liturgical year and then send us back into ordinary time to walk through the life of Jesus all over again. I've been at Pearl for 20 years now, and this liturgical calendar business still trips me up sometimes, so that recap was just as much for me as it was for you. Over the course of Lent and Easter season, we've taken a close look, among many things, at Kin kingship, excuse me, noting particularly that the kingship of Jesus stands in stark contrast to the kings of this earth. Earthly kings come to power through violence and military conquest. Earthly kings enact control over their subjects through oppression and prejudice, creating empirical rule. Earthly kings demand absolute obedience and loyalty or else face the punishment. Earthly kings call their subjects to fight for them, to expand their kingdom and rule. And earthly kings see themselves as above their subjects in every way, set apart and special. In contrast, however, Jesus has a very different approach to kingship, displaying power and authority through non-violence healing the sick, releasing captives, giving sight to the blind, and declaring the Lord's favor over all the earth. Jesus eats with sinners, tax collectors, and the unclean, demonstrating how equality looks like, what equality looks like, and who belongs in the kingdom of God. Jesus never demands that he be obeyed or followed outright. He invites people, though, to be with him, especially outcasts. He doesn't command an army or lead a rebellion. He encourages the people to obey the laws of Caesar, saying, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. Jesus calls his disciples friends and treats them as such, sharing meals, telling stories, 
washing feet. Those who attend him and care for his needs, mainly women, he treats with honor and respect. And this, you see, was not what anyone was expecting, a Messiah, a savior, a king who would deliver them from the tyranny of Roman rule to look like. They expected a king like the kings of the earth. Display your power, conquer our enemies, show us your wealth and splendor. And when Jesus didn't act in the ways that they considered synonymous with a powerful king, even his closest disciples were confused, often asking, who is this? And saying, what does he mean? Sometimes I wonder if I would have been right there with the disciples. Would I want Jesus to rise up and overthrow the unjust powers that be? Probably. Would I want Jesus to make those in power pay for their acts of injustice against the weak and the vulnerable? Probably. Would I prefer a flashy, mighty king like the kings of the earth over a humble, poor carpenter from Nazareth that had no home, no family, no title, or army backing him up? If I'm being honest, I probably would struggle too to accept Jesus's way, especially if I was suffering under the tyranny of an unjust empire. You know, if Jesus showed up here today in our modern empirical-like country, would I recognize and accept him and the kingdom that he invites people to participate in? I think that I would, and I believe that I do, but even I have to admit that Jesus's way seems really slow sometimes. Sometimes I just wish that wrongs would be made right, that justice would be served, that people would get it and treat one another the way they want to be treated. Right up until his last breath, the disciples expressed their own lack of understanding of Jesus and the kingdom that he had been teaching them about all along. Maybe they thought that Jesus would bring peace somehow, but it would seem that they didn't see the grand peace for all eternity that Jesus was setting in motion. They were expecting peace in their time and peace for their people peace from Roman oppression, but not peace for all time and for all people. When Jesus died on the cross, none of the disciples were there. They had all deserted him in his final hours. All of their hopes of Jesus being a king from the line of David who would rule and bring justice for the oppressed, release for the captives, sight for the blind, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor had come to ruin He was being treated as a common criminal, displayed on a cross high above the city for all to see his defeat. Only the women who had faithfully cared for him remained at the foot of the cross as he breathed his last, proclaiming, it is finished. And as we know, and as we've been celebrating, he died and resurrection came three days later. Women were the first to see the Lord alive again, but over the 40 days of Easter, he appeared to the disciples and many others, proving to them that he was alive again and performing miracles. And this brings us to the Ascension Sunday. 
Prior to joining Pearl Church in 2002, the word ascension had very little meaning for me. I suppose I knew that it meant something like literally going up, you know, like you get into an elevator and you ascend to the next floor or you hike a mountain and you ascend to the top. I suppose I also had heard it in terms of a king ascending a throne, but being from the U.S. and familiar with presidents, not monarchs, I have to admit the images that would come to my mind of the ascension of a king to a throne would have been more along these lines. I'm going to share screen with you. Give me just a second. When I think of kings, this is more what I think of. Mufasa, king of Pride Rock from The Lion King. Or Prince Humperdinck, the wannabe king from The Princess Bride. Or, ah, the noble King Aslan, king of Narnia from The Chronicles of Narnia. Or this man, King Richard of England from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And last but certainly not least, Aragorn, the heir of Isildur, King of Gondor from Lord of the Rings. These are the images of kings ascending thrones that would have come to my mind prior to being at Pearl Church. And possibly that's because I come from a conservative Baptist church and the ascension of Jesus post-resurrection was all about the commissioning of the disciples. So what comes to my mind is more this picture, this picture of Jesus hovering over the disciples, delivering a message to them on commissioning. The emphasis was on the words that he was delivering to them, not the fact that he was a king ascending a throne of a different kind of kingdom. Here's a few other ascension photos that I grabbed. This, these two are from the 15th and 16th century. And these two more modern, I prefer these modern depictions of the ascension. But really it's this one that stands out mostly in my mind of what comes to mind when I think of the Ascension prior to 2002. One second. Sorry. There's two passages that I want us to look at as we think about the ascension. The first one is found in the book of Acts. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he'll return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. 
the second passage related to ascension, that stands out to me is Matthew 28, where Jesus commissions the disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And this, this commissioning is what I picture with that image of Jesus hovering over the disciples when I think of the ascension. These were the primary passages that I heard spoken of in my religious upbringing, and the emphasis was always entirely around evangelism. The story that I internalized from these teachings as a teen would sound something like this. Jesus is leaving the earth and giving his spirit to believers. This is an important delineation. He's giving his spirit to believers, not unbelievers, and calling them to go into the world and make disciples everywhere they go, i.e., be a missionary, a witness, tell people that Christ died for their sins and that they can be forgiven by believing and being baptized, thus escaping eternal damnation and receiving the Spirit of God to mark their salvation. Mindy, Jesus did his work by dying on the cross. Now you're to do your part in this mission by saving souls for Jesus and telling them that they're lost, but they can be found. And this will earn you points with God. This is what I heard and internalized growing up. I remember at the small Bible college that I went to, there was an unspoken hierarchy of study, in my opinion. Of course, those who were studying to be pastors were high up there, but from where I stood, men and women who were in the missionary track were saintly already. They were the favorites of professors and administrators. If you were called to the mission field, you were something special. You were really doing the work of God according to the evangelical Christian message I understood. And then for those of us who weren't called to missions, we weren't off the hook, though. There were family members and co-workers, strangers in line at the grocery store, who were all lost, too. And it was our duty to fulfill the words of Jesus, share the gospel with them, making them disciples, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus had commanded. Bear in mind here that the work I understood was mine— to do was all about getting this message of forgiveness out and going to heaven in the afterlife. It did not include anything about following the way of Jesus in this life, nothing about the kingdom of God being manifest here and now. This emphasis on getting the message out there and getting it right created a tremendous amount of unnecessary stress and guilt. I mean, my chest was heavy with anxiety even as I was reflecting and writing this message. Sheesh, Jesus was seen as an authoritarian God who left a very important job for his followers to accomplish in his absence, and failure, I understood, was not an option. The souls of humanity were depending on evangelicals to bring those who are lost the gospel. Talk about pressure. But we were reminded that it shouldn't be too difficult because we have the Spirit of God in us, and that gives us the strength and the words to say to anyone who's ready to hear it. What? 
What if I feel, what if I feel weak? What if I feel scared? What if I don't want to talk to strangers? What if I, what if I, wait for it. What if I actually think people are fine just the way they are and they don't need to hear a message about how they can be saved? What if I see people outside of evangelicalism living a lot more like Jesus than the people within my own church, within my own school that I'm a part of? The evangelical storyline, understood in part by these passages that I've read, has everything to do with the afterlife and avoiding hell, getting into heaven. In short, it says, Jesus is leaving the earth in your hands. Go and make everyone you can disciples. Teach them to obey and follow me. And I'll be with you in spirit. And then one day I'll come back. I'll take you with me to be with heaven in the same way that I'm leaving you now, presumably by floating away into the sky. The ascension in the evangelical tradition I was taught had little to do with the establishing of an eternal kingdom where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over a kingdom that's breaking through here and now that we're all called to participate in as divine human beings alive with the Spirit and bearers of this good news that Jesus is not a king like the kings of the earth who rule in authoritarian violence, but instead he makes himself a servant and humbles himself to the lowest of places in society to show his absolute solidarity with the disenfranchised people of the earth. And then instead, instead of establishing his kingdom through violence enacted against others, he himself becomes the object of judgment and violence is enacted against him in the most deplorable and humiliating way possible by hanging on a tree for all to see. This king, this king is not a lion like Mufasa or Aslan or Richard. This king, as Mike so eloquently shared on a recent Sunday, this king is a lamb. And all throughout his time on earth, those closest to Jesus expected him to become their king like the other kings of the earth. Even in the Acts passage that I read, after he had risen from the dead, for Pete's sakes, they were still asking, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Do you hear their entitlement? They still are asking him to overthrow Rome and establish his throne on earth and free them. His answer to them is like a parent dismissing their toddler's 100th request for a cookie before dinner. He says, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. There's something much bigger and grander going on here, guys. But they still want him to be an earthly king who resembles a lion. This is the only kind of king that they knew. The idea that a king could be any other way had never existed in their minds. And it's understandable why they were confused about Jesus being an actual king. He didn't act like any king they'd ever seen. But Jesus's ascension after the 40 days of post-resurrection miracles is his final attempt to prove to them once and for all that he is a king of a different kind of kingdom. 
by ascending into heaven, Jesus takes his place on the throne as Lord of this new alternative kingdom where the lion is the lamb. And as he leaves, he tells them that they'll be empowered by the Spirit to be witnesses to the kind of life he lived before their very eyes and the truths that he taught as they traveled with him from place to place. When I was in my early years as a mom, some evangelical friends and I formed a support group. We called it, I'm embarrassed to say publicly, we called it HMC, which stood for Hot Moms Club. I know. Gag. Yeah. We all had young, young children. In fact, between the five of us, we had 21 children under the age of 13 when the youngest was born. It was around that time that all my questions about evangelical theology, if you haven't noticed, I wasn't a very good evangelical under the surface, my questions all started to reach a boiling point on a rare weekend that we all were able to get away, just the moms, to rest and to be together. I remember one of the girls showing a video about a man in India who owned a shoe shop. And at night, he would go out into the streets and he would find people shivering in the cold, barefoot and trying to sleep. And this kind, gentle man would lovingly wash their feet, bandage their wounds, and put a brand new pair of socks and shoes on them as they slept. Just as the tears are welling up in my eyes now at the memory of this, I remember hot tears streaming down my face as I watched this man display the love of Jesus to the most vulnerable people. It was like watching the kingdom of God break through. And when the video concluded, the girl showing the video and I, we were both a mess. And the other three women asked us what was so disturbing to us. I spoke up and I said, that the Indian man was so much like how I imagined Jesus being, that he was giving glory to God and manifesting the love of God in this world. This man was truly living out the gospel. To this, one of the three women, my closest friend at the time, actually responded by saying, how can you say that? He's not a Christian. He didn't tell them about Jesus, and they aren't saved. What he did was not in the name of Jesus, so how can it be glorifying to God? Let me say that again. What he did was not in the name of Jesus, so how can it be glorifying to God? It's a much longer story, but that was the beginning of the end of that friendship and my connection with that group of women. But that experience so clearly shows the disconnect that happens in the evangelical understanding of the ascension of Jesus as being just a message delivered to the disciples to get out to the world. My friend couldn't see the Spirit of God clearly manifesting divine love before her very eyes because neither the shoekeeper nor the people he was helping were disciples of Jesus who had believed the message. 
So if the ascension then isn't about a mission being passed to the disciples of Jesus to accomplish in his absence, like delivering a message, then what's the importance of this declaration by Jesus as he ascended that the disciples will be his witnesses? Here's one idea. I think that Jesus is inviting them to live into a new reality. One where a lamb is on the throne as king instead of a lion. A reality where people are made whole, where peace comes not through violence, but by unconditional love being offered to each and every single person on the planet. They're being invited to deliver a message, but it's not turn or burn. Their message is an embodied message that shows a different way of being human in the world. A way of being human that models the life of Jesus, like the Indian shoekeeper, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, generous to all that has been made, humble and willing to face persecution, to communicate the intensity with which the divine loves all of us. And this invitation, it wasn't just for the disciples. You see, we all are invited to live lives that are animated by the divine love of God. And when we live in this way, we actively participate in a kingdom that's not established through violence and power over the weak, but through compassion and sacrificial love. We bear witness to the lamb who is king, who suffered unto death, rose on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father. I've shared before about this great pattern that all life is caught up in, the pattern of life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We see this pattern taking place everywhere on our planet, through nature and in the lives of individuals past and present. Life is created and life suffers some form of death whether literal or metaphorical. And if resurrection precedes death and is about coming alive and being made new, transformed from one thing to something entirely different, then ascension is about living into that new transformed reality. As children of a gracious, compassionate, and loving lamb who is king, may we live lives of peace mercy, and love, actively participating in this new reality that the the ascension proclaims. The lion is the lamb. The lamb is the king over all creation. Let's pray. Lamb of God, you've established your eternal kingdom not by way of violence, but through sacrificial love offered for all humanity. Reform our hearts, open our eyes to see and participate in your kingdom of divine love today. Amen. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, Will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, 
or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.